education is not just transmission of knowledge. Okay, that's a big part of it, of course, but it's really how to teach people how to teach themselves. You know, how to do they can continue learning, right? And what I keep out of that is seeing the world. Welcome to Higher Education Without Borders, a podcast series dedicated to education professionals worldwide. This series is hosted by Dr. Sentel Nathan and Dean Hoke, managing partners in Edu Alliance. Each episode is a conversation with thought leaders that will enlighten and provide some new thoughts on critical issues facing higher education. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Welcome to Higher Ed Without Borders, and thank you for tuning in. I'm Dean Hoke in Bloomington, Indiana, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Central Nathan in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. Central greetings to you, and we have a very special guest today who is a bit of a neighbor of yours. Would you please go ahead and introduce him? Sure, Dean. Joining us today is uh, Dr. Tony Chan, president of King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Saudi Arabia, founded in 2009. It is the first mixed gender university campus in all of Saudi Arabia, and it has an enrollment of about 1,100 all graduate and PhD students. It is ranked as one of the top three universities in the Arab world. Dean? Well, Tony, greeting. And I also understand that you're not exactly in the Saudi Arabia. You're on our side of the world today in Los Yeah, Arabia. I'm in the U.S. I just arrived. Yeah. yeah. Well, welcome. And I hope you get a little bit of rest. And um, the time shift must be must be a murder. Uh, it's okay, actually, so far. <laughs> well, By the way, yeah. I have a small correction. I think uh, Sentil mentioned uh, we have 1,100 students. We actually are close to 1,600. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, good. the 1100 was maybe three, four years ago. Two years so back. And, uh, expand. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, excellent. All right. Well, good. That shows progress and that everything's building. Now, uh, quite a few of the listeners to this podcast are uh, higher education leaders from around the world. And I'm sure some of them uh, may have this aspiration to become president. Uh, but as we talked even before, uh, being an university president is a rather a lonely job. So yep. for listeners, can you just share some of the leadership lessons that you learned in your personal journey? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, you know, first I want to say is I always tell people, you know, you cannot go to the equivalent of a business school to get an MBA to become a university president. There's no training school or finishing schools for, for university president. Most of us sort of, you know, fell into the job. You know, you become chairman, you become dean, and then, you know, and so on and so forth. It is a lonely job. Yeah. But part of it can be, uh, you can rely on your experience. But I, for one, I'm always mindful that, you know, I'm just one person. Mm-hmm. However diverse and rich my own personal background, it, it doesn't cover the whole universe yeah. of academia. But with that being said, you know, one thing I really enjoy doing, uh, you know, is meeting other university presidents. Mm-hmm. And they can, you can at least, uh, they sympathize with you. <laughs> they understand your situation and they can often share uh, best practices. Mm-hmm. Okay, some mm-hmm. of them have been along the way, longer. And there are many, many uh, platforms and occasions to meet other university presidents. Surprisingly, the university president, you know, they get, they get around. Uh, there, are, there are various uh, university alliances 
yeah. you know, geographical or whatever it is. Uh, for example, I used to attend uh, the World Economic Forum in Davos, and they have something called the Global University Leaders Forum. So mm. it's about 30 mm. universities present from around the world, from really different parts of the world. And you can ask them after you get to know people, you can say, hey, I have this challenge. Okay. And you explain to them. And most of the cases are, oh, yeah, I know that. And let me tell you how I handle it. May not apply to you. But I think part of it is just getting it out of your system. You're airing yeah. to hear that you are not crazy. So that, that's, uh, that's useful. Uh, the other thing, of course, you have uh, all presidents have their own leadership team, you know, other vice president, provost, and they have their own background. Uh, and my my viewers, my my tactic is to treat them like equal. I mean, we have different responsibilities. So I ask them, I consult them. How does it work in where you came from? Mm -hmm. right? And many of them have some idea, you know. Uh, so I think that's uh, and then just more broadly, you need teamwork. You know, no, you know, university is a complex organization. You need to build a team that have to share the vision and the and the goal. I think that's. Now, I think the second part of your question is about leadership lessons. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are books written about this, okay? so, But I, I can share with you uh, something I've learned, you know, because I've been president twice now. So you always say, boy, if I knew this, okay, I would have done it differently or earlier. Yeah. So one is actually, I've learned is to set a vision and the goals and the goals early. Mm. Okay, I, I learned that uh, from my previous jobs. And when I came into Cows, even before I arrived, a couple of months before I arrived, I had occasion to meet with some senior leadership. And I told them what I wanted to do. I communicated with my board. I said, this is kind of what I want to do. Okay, so let me know. Okay, so there's no misunderstanding. And, you know, I, I think that's very important. And then second thing is communication, as I hinted. You know, you might have all this in your head, mm. but if you don't articulate it, People just don't know. And communication is not just getting the information. You also like got to listen. Okay. And you have to be ready to modify, you mm. know, adapt when you hear things. Uh, so I think that's very uh, important. The, the other thing, of course, is uh, with university, I think you already mentioned, the university exists not in a vacuum. It exists as part of a society, part of a culture, yeah. part of a history. So if you're coming in new, by the way, even let's say I'm moving from California to New York, it's different, even though it's the same country. So you got to adapt and find out, okay, you know, what those things are. And you need some uh, guide, you know, yeah. some advisors who know better than you. And you, you, you don't assume that you know everything. Yeah. One more thing I want to mention that is uh, being a leader, you know, there are different styles. There's no one size fits all. But one thing I've learned is that uh, you got to consult widely, but you got to decide promptly. In other words, right? You, you don't just continue to, yeah. to consult and never make a because you're pay you're paid to do the job. Right. Okay, you have to take the responsibility. So you listen, you use your own background, uh, and then you just say, okay, we got to go this way. Mm. I think that's something that I wish I knew the first time I did it. I mean, I I learned on the job. Okay, so. Now, the final thing I want to, I want to say is, uh, and this is something I really did, had not imagined, and that is a little bit of the politics. I politics in a good way, in a good way, because uh, internally, you know, you have 
you know, hundreds of faculty in our case. They all have different backgrounds, they have different aspirations, different disciplines. You know, if you say, I want to have some initiative in area A, they would, they, some of them will may interpret as, oh, that means you are not funding my area B. You know, I mean, there's some uh, politics. Are you siphoning resources out to area C and ignore my area D, right? So this is uh, very natural. Uh, but there's also external uh, mm. politics. The most, I, the board, it's internal, really. They are part of the, but most of them are not, you know, management, right? They, they are not academics typically. Some of them are, but most of them are not. They don't really understand the university to the same extent, right, as the academics. So you know, you, you gotta, and they have different uh, background and depend on who they are, and so their politics that way too. And then going beyond this, uh, the society that you live in. You know, all universities. I don't care whether it's public or private, and whether Whatever. The, the, the public view all university as part of theirs, okay? I mean, you know, you go to Harvard or Stanford, okay? They're a private university in the U.S., but, you know, the local community, you know, they're so important for the local community, both economically but reputation-wise, they're so important. Yeah. I'll give you a very concrete example. I mean, real politics. You know, I was in Hong Kong, right, for, for about 10 years. During that time, there were a lot of political turmoil. Uh, earlier in 2014, there was something called Occupy Central. Mm. You know, it was mild looking back compared to what happened after I left in 2019. Yeah. Okay, so but even back then, as a university president, you know, you can say you know, university is supposed to be neutral, and I am neutral, and you know, we we no, that's not uh, that's not good enough. Yeah. So you got to almost uh, uh, expected or sometimes forced to take sides. And that's very difficult because you are not just representing yourself. You're representing the institution. Yeah. You're part of society. That's always very difficult. So I think for those people <laughs> in a, an enviable position of trying to start up a university and become a president, that is something that comes with a package, so to speak. But it could be very interesting. Yeah. You only live once. Uh, yeah, it, it will be always part of your legacy, so to speak. Yeah, yeah very true. Indeed. Tony, let's talk about the origin. Um, you were you're not only a university president there. I think at one time you had involvement almost at. I was the on beginning. the board. You were on the board, right? I was on the board for starting about year three of Kaust. Mm. So how? So did I can that, tell you a little bit about. Yeah, Kaust, tell me how about how I don't want to. I can go on yeah. for an hour, but. But well, I tell you a little bit in my personal involvement, in my personal involvement. So cows, uh, the idea for cows came from King Abdullah, right? That's the K-8. So he was king of Saudi Arabia and, and he passed away around 2015. So back in about 2006, he as king. Uh, and so in terms of he's, a, he's the head of Saudi Aramco, right? the whole country, okay? And he, and he realized that Oil is the main revenue for the kingdom and the economy, the pillar of the economy. But it's going to run out at some point. It's going to run out. I mean, this is before the big movement of climate change and renewable energy and all that. I mean, it was still in the works already, but we say, okay. And that's, so that's one motivation uh, for founding cows. The second one, he has a grand vision, which attracted a lot of people who joined cows. And this is uh, the... Uh, 
Arab world or the Islamic world uh, about a thousand years ago, you know, was the center of human civilization. There's something called the House of Wisdom. It's based in uh, Baghdad. You know, you heard of the Library of Alexandria, you know, all that, you know, so in this region, a lot of, a lot of stuff we take for granted, you know, in, in let's say science, scientific fields or originated from this area. For example, I'm a computer scientist. The word algorithm is from here. Anything with AL in front is, is Arabic, right? Algebra is from here. Laws right. of astronomy, things are from here. So I think uh, King Abdullah, his vision was, okay, sort of the Islamic world or Arab world sort of fell behind the last several hundred years. Uh, it's now time to do that. Oil price was over $100 per barrel back then. I mean, right, right now is what we near that. I don't know. I don't keep track of this. So we said, okay, we will invest in a, a new university that is a beacon to the rest of the world. It will be the new house of wisdom, okay? And it will offer a place for people to pursue uh, knowledge, focus, you know, not everything, but at the same time, it would also benefit Saudi Arabia and, the, and uh, all of the world. So that's how it started. And uh, he, he put uh, a, size, uh, a sizable endowment Okay, so that we 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 sort of live off, uh, live off. That's not right. Our main support comes from part of the return of investment of the endowment. Okay, that's uh, uh, what it is. Uh, <clears throat> so, so it started uh, that way. Uh, he asked uh, Saudi Aramco to help build a campus. I mean, you know, so the physical campus was built by you know Saudi Aramco has a lot of engineers who know how to build things. It was built. Uh, that were in the under a thousand days, and they okay. Then they they uh, I I I never uh, met him in person. I was in the same room with him uh, in the inauguration of cows. But I can imagine he would get together a number of advisors uh, to plan. He's not an academic. He knows. He knew, and so uh, together with this academic, uh, uh, these advisors, they hire uh, a consulting group. You know, not not you know, anyway, not so different from Edu Alliance. Right. It's called the Washington Consulting Group. Yeah, I remember it was. You know, you probably know them. You know, founded by the former president of Cornell, Frank Rose, and former president of the U.S. National Academy of Science. I think it was uh, Frank Press and a number of people. So they sort of get together and uh, decided. For example, so the positioning is it will be graduate only. Okay, no undergrad, different reasons. Uh, it will be in science and technology, and that's the UST, okay? It's meant to be global, but also local, right? So, so they've started with uh, four themes for us to focus on. Energy, very natural. Back then, it was about petroleum. Today, it's petroleum and renewable energy. So over the last 13 years, it changed tremendously. Second theme is environment. You mm. know, the environment, obviously, you know, climate change and all that, mm. uh, but... In Saudi Arabia, the environment is very harsh. Yeah. For example, for every degree rise in, in climate, it will wipe down a big part of Saudi Arabia in terms of whether you can live there. So for example, okay, there's a, the third part is water. You know, Saudi Arabia, basically all the drinking water, you know, is from desalination. It's the world's largest desalination country. Okay, of course it's very expensive, takes a lot of energy to do. Uh, so I think that's the last one is uh, food. So you know, in a way, you can see why right, it's difficult to grow food. 
uh, in this area. And uh, since I came, I uh, added digital things like AI, machine learning, cybersecurity, robotics, and all this stuff. So you see, we are very focused. We don't have departments. We don't have departments, okay? We have basically three divisions. Basically, uh, you know, the, the physical science part, you know, mechanical engineering, geologists, and so on. Then you have the biological and environmental science layer together. And then we have the sort of mathematical science, computer science, electrical engineering, and so on. And we, the idea, we don't even have, want to have division. You know, today, the life sciences depends very much on AI and the sensors. So they're all working together. And we're small enough. So we are very small. Uh, right now, we have about 200 faculty. We have about 1,600 students. Maybe three quarters of those are PhDs. Hmm. So the, some of the master will convert into PhD, but not all. Okay. In addition, we have another 400 postdocs. And then another 400, what we call research scientists. These are people with PhDs. They're not faculty. They're not postdocs. They're a little bit more permanent. So if you add the 200 plus 400 plus 400, we basically have a thousand PhDs working on the research enterprise. So even though the faculty is small, but the overall, and okay, so that's uh, what we have. Yeah. We also have uh, some of the, the, the big attraction to most people is we have uh, uh, what we call a core laboratories. You know, the equipment is second to none. You know, it's probably like a billion dollars worth of equipment that you need, you, you need to maintain, you need to renew. I'll give you an example. We are now in the, in the final stages of renewing our supercomputer. This is the third edition. Okay, it's called Shaheen. So we have Shaheen 3. So when, with Shaheen 1 and 2, when they were new, they were the world's fastest supercomputer in any university. Wow. I mean, there are countries that have them. Many countries don't even have them. Okay, so we are now trying to get the third one. So if you are, your work requires supercomputers, uh, to you, we are very attractive. Okay, you don't have to, you know, ask for funding. Uh, so, at those, those are some of the. Uh, by the way, we we also most of our, uh, our faculty lives and staff live on our campus. You know, in the old day, we have a compound. Okay, where it's like you know, people say I'm a president, but also a mayor of a small town. The town is about <laughs> eight thousand people. I have a. Uh, yeah, we have police, we have fire department, we have a big supermarket, we have a K-12 school, you know, a health, big health clinic, all that stuff, you know, is involved. So, and during COVID, I was more a mayor than a university president because university was kind of not shut down, but, you know, much more quiet, right? But the community, you know, is still living there. Right. Settle? Yeah. As, I, as I'm listening to you, there's a couple of things that... Uh, that impressed me. One, obviously, the cows and its commitment to higher education research. On the other side, you also mentioned about the rich heritage of the Arab world uh, on research, higher education, innovation, all that. Mm -hmm. But uh, Tony, we are here today, uh, uh, and uh, the we, we want to explore what is the role importance of higher education in the wider Middle East? Not now just talking about excellent examples like Kaos, but the region as a whole. Uh, as you know, the Egyptian American Nobel laureate, uh, Ahmed Zouel, uh, said this one time, the Middle East is rich in its uh, human and natural resources, but many of our countries need a cultural and scientific transformation. So how do you see a 
very fundamental basic transformation of young people in the region back to the 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 you know the discipline that you talked about the discipline of curiosity innovation critical thinking problem solving all that were existing a few hundred years back how do we bring it back so that they can excel in stem areas yeah, I cannot agree more with uh, Nobel laureate Ahmed Zivail. Uh, you know, I, he, he was a he is or was a faculty member at Caltech, so I, I didn't know him personally, but I, I knew him. You know, in a way, I I've been in Saudi Arabia in the Middle East for about four years. I'm learning so much about the history and the culture, and the tradition in this part of the world. So I mentioned already about the House of Wisdom. You know, uh, the, the so in a way, this culture, this excellent, has always been there. Mm. I think it was sort of in, uh, in it was you know it was in a quiet period. It was kind of in a low point for the last I don't know a few hundred years. Okay, uh, so you know, and also as it counts, we actually see a lot of the really top, you know, one percent of the population all the way from high school. Yeah, because we we bring them into our university, you know, to do that. Yeah. To of course, you know, the PhDs and the the leaders of society, yeah. they are talents. You know, Saudi Arabia has a population of about 35 million people. Okay. You know, it's not small. It's not the biggest country, but but it's not small. You have really top people. For example, we train people to go to the International, International Math Olympiad mm. and the International Chemistry Olympiad. We actually have trained them. You see the people coming in and they go and win some of the prizes. Okay. And uh, they are very articulate, uh, ambitious. I think in a way, uh, you know, you know, what is needed is like the, the whole ecosystem. So imagine, right, if you are in an ecosystem where you're talented, okay, but first of all, uh, let's say you're interested in science. Okay, let's take an example. But maybe your parents, you know, are not, you know, your home environment is not conducive to that. Or maybe even if they are, they say, well, no, 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 you know, if you want to be a scientist, you know, it don't earn you money. Yeah. Why don't you become a lawyer, you know, or a doctor? Okay, you know that happens, you know, all around the world. Uh, and and if you want to say you want to, oh, I want to, I'm interested in some area, you know, esoteric area. What seems as esoteric? Uh, for example, I want to do a messenger RNA research, or I want to do quantum something. You cannot explain that to your uncle, right? And you say, well, what is this, you know? But now, of course. They they are transforming our world, so I think that's so. The second the, the the second thing is, let's say you do overcome all those hurdles, and you're now you know well educated in that. Well, what do you do now? Yeah. Right, you you can get a job at MIT as a professor or whatever, right? But if you want to come back to the kingdom, be with your family and serve the kingdom, you need to have the ecosystem to support you. And I think frankly, it was a bit lacking. Mm. I mean, in the old days in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Aramco is the best employer, right? It's a big company, it's global. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's good revenue, probably has good compensation. So that was it. But the idea of entrepreneurship, that you can start your own company, mm. okay? This been, in a way, the role model is so important. You know, in the US, you know, people look at Steve Jobs, Look, look at Steve Jobs, look at Bill Gates, look at Mark Zuckerberg, whatever, you know, Jeff Bezos. And they say, well, you know, I've seen him. <laughs> I should yeah. be as smart as them and I can try my luck. And you need that kind of uh, uh, culture 
yeah. uh, there. And then you need the ecosystem. Okay, let's say you want to start a company or you want to go find a place to further your research. Well, where can you go? I mean, I, I experienced that when I got my PhD and I was thinking about, you know, I, I was born in Hong Kong. I, you know, left as a teenager. So I said, oh, maybe I should go back. Mm. And do, well, the university back then, they were not, they didn't even have a funding agency. There's no funding, okay? So you go there and become a teacher. Okay, that's not what I wanted to do. And here, if you want to start a company, well, where do you go to find the funding? Where do you get the advisor? Now, in Saudi Arabia, that's really changing. I mean, in a way, there's, there's more money than good ideas. If you have good idea, you'll get funding because there are a lot more uh, role models now, okay, I think. Now, the, the, the importance of education, I mean, I don't have to... Know, is in your name, right? In the organization's name. In a way, you you got to start from all the way from when people were young. Mm. Because this is a, a mindset. At the end of the day, people have to learn on their own. They have to formulate their own plan. They have, have their own ambition. But educators have to open their eyes so they see what the possibilities they are. I think in a way, cows is we're trying to do our best in this. So for example, we don't have undergrad, but we have, you know, high school students come to our lab. They actually come here, spend several weeks in the summer. And they say, oh, wow, this is what research is about. Most mm. people don't know what research is. They say, yeah. oh, I like this. Okay, now I want to go to study my undergrad, you know, somewhere, and then I want to get a PhD. See, before it never crossed their mind. Okay. So I think that's a very, very uh, important. Uh, so the last thing is... Uh, you know, in terms of education, education is not just transmission of knowledge, okay? That's a big part of it, of course. But it's really how to teach people how to teach themselves, you know? <laughs> how to do they can continue learning, right? And what I keep out of that is seeing the world. The world is so globally connected. You know, you, you probably know Saudi Arabia probably has an undeserved reputation of being a mysterious kingdom, you know what I mean? And it was, it was not so open. You know, it was just a, like five, six years, 10 years ago, it was not open. You cannot get a tourist visa to come. But today you can get online and get a visa in less than half an hour. You can come here, you know, rent a car, you can drive around. And vice versa, for Saudis, you know, most of them have not really traveled even within Saudi Arabia. Mm. Never mind over, no, the, the elite, the well-off people, they yeah. can travel the world, you see them everywhere. So I think part of education is to open the eyes of the population. So if you, through education, you can do education abroad, you can read things, right? You can learn about what other people are doing. To me, you know, it takes time. That's the part that it would take uh, time and patience. Right. But that is required as a fundamental transformation. By the way, last thing I want to mention is, you know, a, a good historical example, very current, is what happened to China. Hmm. You know, for those of you who have visited China, say 40 years ago, you know, China was so poor, so <laughs> in the development is so backward. And, but it has, it decided to invest in the education system. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I mean, India is probably the same. Okay. So, so, you know, many, many Indians, the top talent, uh, you know, go around the world, you know, and so, I think it doesn't matter whether they go around the world. I think in a way, they, they always help, you know, you know, so I think for Saudi, they go over to see, they get a good, you know, final company. They will always benefit Saudi Arabia when they, if they come back, even if they don't, 
you know, their reputation will yeah. always help. So I think education is a key part, is a long-term investment. Yeah. Right. Well, Tony, one of the things that you discuss here, and maybe this goes back to your roots. I mean, you yeah. born and raised in Hong Kong, right? Uh, yes, I left as a teenager. Yeah. And, and then United States, then Hong Kong again, then Saudi. Yeah. You've been a world traveler in most of your career. You've traveled from one culture to another. What I'm curious about is a little bit about your own major influences. What influenced you? What were some of the contributors? Uh, you have mentors that brought you down this path because, I mean, you're a scientist primarily. I think you come from the science yes. side. Yes. Uh, so there are mentors who I know and interact with, but they're also uh, inspirators. Yeah, you know who inspired me. Maybe I start from the beginning. Okay, uh, I was always interested in uh, physics when I was in school, so I, I was going to be a physics major. I think you know physics is a master of the universe. That's how I thought. You know, you know it's amazing how Einstein could, you know, in a few equations describe the whole world or Newton. You know, it's amazing, amazing. So I wanted to do that. I never thought about going ab abroad. Okay, but then okay. I read about Richard Feynman. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know about him, right? Most yeah. The public know about, you know, you know, he has books about him. He's a very humorous guy. Uh, he's a, not a nerdy kind of scientist. He was uh, the challenger, you know, the O-ring and all that. Well, I read about him when I was in high school. He just won the Nobel Prize a few years before. So I said, I want to go to this place. I want to study under Richard Feynman. I, I had no idea, you know. It's, you know, I've never been abroad. So that's actually, I only applied to Caltech. Hmm. I said, this is where I want to be. You know, if but I can only apply to one anywhere. school, one you apply school. to one place. That's it. But anyway, I tried to apply to MIT, but I passed the deadline. So at the <laughs> end, I applied to only one. Probably still today, they they have a deadline in December, whereas most US schools in January. I think <laughs> at that time, and Canada does, did not charge uh, application fees. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because if you you know if you apply to fifteen schools, you know they charge a lot of money for people from the third world. You know, I consider myself from a third world back then. But anyway, so Richard Feynman was really an inspiration. When, when I went to Caltech, I studied using his book. I never met him personally because he was not teaching, you know, the, the calculus at uh, the physics class. But I still had the books. I still had the books with me with underlying yellow marker is, is part of me. So, you know, this, this little inspiration is what set many people off to pursue what they want to do. I think that's a one. The other one is actually maybe a cliche. It's Alan Turing. You know about this person? This movie made about him. Yeah. Okay. Because I pick computer science, right? I pick computer science. So I learned about so I learned about Turing machines. I mean, you know, it's technical, but so it's very theoretical, very abstract. But then I learned about that he designed the the code breaking machine Enigma during World War II. Now yeah. you know everybody knows because this. So I said, this guy is really a genius. You know, so he's so abstract, like a pure mathematician, but then he can break codes, and that's very, very specific. Yeah. And and using he built his own computers basically during the Second World War. I think that's that's the person I want to be, okay? So those two are people that I never met, right? But they were inspirational. Now, of course, during my career, I had I benefit a lot from actual people I know. Typically, they're older than me, senior than me, and who has helped me. For example, when I was uh, at Stanford, there was some professor, you know, you know, called Gene Golub. He's passed away now. He really influenced me. Uh, as a person, also uh, uh, technically, you know, intellectually. But one person I want to highlight, okay, a person I know, uh, he he was uh, 
he was the founder of this company called MathWorks that produced a software called MATLAB. Many of them, you know, by the way, it's over a billion dollars company now. Oh. It has, I don't know how many millions of users, not just in academia, in industry and so on. And he was uh, a Stanford grad, but, you know, maybe six or seven years ahead of me. And I know him, you know, since that time. Now, he's an amazing guy. So he, he, he's retired now, but he's still quite active. And he made a lot of contribution in the scientific area. So we work in the same area. So I know him very well. Okay. But he founded this company that really impact the whole world. Yeah. And not only does he, I assume he's rich and make money, but that's besides the point. I mean, he, this thing is now his legacy. You know, 5 million people, let's say, are using this. Okay. So, and he employs like 5,000 people in the company. So I think to me, he was a, so the final thing I want to mention is, uh, and people I know, you know that these two universities, my Klaus and uh, and HAUST, they were new universities, and I know both founders. Mm. They were founders, okay, just by in different ways. So for example, HAUST, his name is Jia uh, Wei uh, Wu. Wu is the last name. So he was a he was one of the first Chinese American to become president of a. A, a sizable university in the U.S. You know, he was uh, he was the president of San Francisco State, but before that, he was at UC San Diego, a physicist, by the way. So I always thought, wow, well, you know, it's possible, okay, <laughs> to be. You know, this is back then, right? This is like thirty some years ago. It's not so common. The other one was the president of Kaus, the first president. His name is uh, he's from Singapore. Uh, his name is Xi Chunfeng Xi, and he was the president of National University of Singapore mm. back then. A little bit like me, you know, he, he was from Singapore. He studied at Harvard. He didn't work in industry and then at Brown University. Then uh, Singapore sort of got him back. And so these two are really pioneers. Because starting these two universities, different context, different culture, it's amazing. I mean, I know because I'm sort of following their footsteps. And I know how difficult if I said, God, if I were there, I have to do all this stuff. So I think they always uh, inspire me. It's, it's always good to to know that it can be done, whatever challenges I face in my daily job, I say, well, it's nothing. It pales compared to what they had to face. So that's uh, right. Santo, you yeah. have the last question. Sure. Uh, uh, as you have worked in so many different cultures, it's quite extensively, I, I must say. Uh, I'm sure you you have uh, you've been uh, making a lot of astute uh, observations. The one area we just want to explore, because this goes to uh, educators around the world, what are some values you see as uh, uh, values in higher education that transcend uh, cultures for you know borders, for nations, all this stuff? And what are some things that, as an educator, that you have to adapt to the local? Yeah, yeah. that's so, a good question. Yeah. I'm glad you, you placed the question that way, because it's it's not one size fits all. Yeah. The thing that you, you can borrow and things that you have to adapt, right? So that's, uh, but first of all, yeah, you're right. I've been around the world. By the way, not just places where I've worked, but mm. places that I actually have visited. Yeah. Okay. And so on. I, I have never had a job in Europe, but I visit Europe quite often. I know, you know, especially the British, the French system. Right. I know them quite well. Of course, when I was in Hong Kong, I know East Asia. China, Korea, Japan, and so on. Remember the President's Club? We always visit uh, each other. So in a way, 
uh, you know, there are a lot of commonality. Mm -hmm. There are many things that all universities face. Well, what is it? You know, university, you have, in a way, you're, you have only two main jobs, right, for university. You have to educate students. Hopefully, they are leaders of the society. But not all universities have the same role. They, they, the students come out in different ways, right? And then you produce knowledge, right, uh, which helps the society, maybe economically, maybe intellectually. So that's really all there is. And so, in a way, they're, they're, through that, there are a lot of common errors. For example, we all want to be excellent academically. Mm. I don't know of any university that say, no, 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 we just want to be third rate, right? You all have your different roles. You know, <laughs> excellent doesn't mean, doesn't mean that you have to get a Nobel Prize because that's not your role, right? Yeah. So, but everybody has to be uh, excellent, okay? I think that's, uh, you want your alumni, your graduate to do well in, in what they do. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be measured by the amount of money they make. Yeah. They can be really changing society or serving society. So I think there's a, a lot of, and we all worry about our reputation, right? So those are, because we are always judged by others. So in a way, but it's, it's unfair to compare different universities if they have different roles, you know, you cannot compare every university to, to, to Harvard or Stanford or Cambridge and Oxford of the world because the society's need is so, so, uh, so widespread. Now, but the, there are also uh, differences and you have to adapt. I already hinted on some of them. First of all, the university, university does not exist in a vacuum. And I said, it doesn't matter whether you're private or public, you are part of society. You have people connected to you. And, and there is history you have to learn, right? There is a culture. Well, the culture is not static, but the time scale, yeah. you know, it's not like overnight, right? It's not a company. We're not trying to respond to, uh, to the stock market, right? Uh, there are also uh, uh, global and local recruitment of talent, mm. okay? So, for example, cows, we think of ourselves as a global university. We are. You come here, our faculty are. Uh, mostly international, but we don't want to be a completely uh, an international entity grafted into Saudi Arabia. We are many. We're trying to expand our Saudi faculty and students right now. So we are now at a pretty good uh, sweet spot, if you will. Our incoming class of student has about fifty percent Saudi. Okay. We probably don't want to go beyond that because we don't want to be ninety percent Saudi because in the, then the value of the mission of cows is not there, right? But you also want to recruit local. But while the challenge is when you're doing that, you, you probably ideally, you don't want to have a quota system, mm. right? You want, to, you want to have sort of a merit-based, quality-based. But there is, you have to adapt to the local culture. I think uh, 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 that is uh, very important. So, you know, universities uh, not only have to adapt, you have to keep your ideal, right? Because we, we are hopefully a long time institution of the, but we also can influence all the stuff we, I mentioned. You know, the top universities around the world, they influence the culture. Mm. They are part of the history, right? They change the economy. That's what I think good universities should strive for. Mm. And they have to do it in different way. Just different places have to do it in different way. Yep, so uh, we are, in a way, I feel privileged to be a head of a you know, university because in a way it's a special institution yeah. uh, in human civilization. Yeah, thanks, thanks. That's a great way to, to finish this conversation, Tony.
Um, thank you. We'd like to thank you and our special guest, Dr. Tony Chan, the president of KAUST. Um, this concludes the episode of Agile Alliance and Higher Ed Without Borders. And of course, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest future guests, please contact us at www.higheredwithoutborders.com and go to the comments section. Yes, we do read all the email, um, good and bad, mostly been good so far, I think. We, of course, we've had great guests. And today we had a great guest as well. So on behalf of Dr. Central Nathan, our production team, myself, Dr. Chan, thank you very much. And make sure to subscribe to our favorite, to your favorite podcast app. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. EDU Alliance is an international higher education consulting firm with offices in Abu Dhabi since 2014 and Bloomington, Indiana since 2017. Nathan and Hoke, along with their team of experienced education professionals, have assisted over 30 universities in nine countries. If you wish to learn more about Higher Ed Without Borders, please go to our website at www.higheredwithoutborders.com. You will find details on our podcast, contact information, and Edu Alliance's services. Thank you.